Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. This is James Altucher. Welcome to the James Altucher Show. I want to give, since this is my second episode, I want to give a little guidelines how to use these episodes. I want you to make the most use of them. I'm not giving financial advice here. I'm not giving stock tips. I don't think people really listen that much to stock tips. Like, you know, whether they're good or bad, if I tell you to go buy Disney, you'll buy it. And then if it goes down a little bit, you might sell it and you might think James is wrong. And then it goes up again, you might buy it. Everyone uses financial advice differently. And I don't think I'm better or worse at it than anyone else. That said, I do want to help people out in this world because it's a pretty scary world out there for a lot of reasons. The entire world is turning upside down. And I mean, probably the scariest news is that something we all know, which is that work is a scam. And, you know, first, there's kind of the obvious reasons why work is a scam, like when you get a job, you're getting paid less than the value you bring to the company. And that's sort of obvious because otherwise the company would go out of business. If they paid you the same amount that they made then from your services, then the company would have no profits and everybody would go out of business and you'd be out of a job. So that's one reason why work is a scam and, and why things are scary. But the other important thing is you're going to get fired. There is a really good chance you're going to get fired or people close to you are going to get fired, which is just as scary because when my family members or my neighbors get fired, it's depressing to me and, and scary to me. And it made me, makes me think, oh my gosh, am I safe? And for a hundred years or so, we were safe. We were in this kind of uh, what I call this philosophy of corporatism, which said if you graduated college got a job at a low level uh, and then rose up for 40 years and got a retirement, you were pretty safe. You could get married, you could uh, cheat on your wife or husband or whatever you were going to do and then you retired, you got a gold watch and eventually you would die and your children and grandchildren would do the same thing as you. But now that's not true. Now com corporatism is over. Since 2008, uh, companies decided they were going to just basically fire all of their employees. And they did. Well, you might say, you know, unemployment went up to 10%, but now it's come down to 7%. I have news for you. That 7% or 8%, whatever it is, is bullshit, largely. In part because many of those employees that have been gotten back into the workforce are temporary employees. 
Why do I know this? I'm on the board of directors of a staffing company. So since 2009, uh, you know, CRRS, the company that I'm on the board of, has gone from 69 million in revenues to almost a billion in revenues. I'm not saying this to brag about them. They, they may or may not be a good company. I'm not recommending or, or, or disrecommending. But I am saying that the staffing and the temp business has gone through the roof and is continuing to go through the roof. Kelly Services is the number two employer in the United States. So basically people have gone from their secure middle management or manufacturing jobs to being temp employees. So what happens when that entire middle sector of a culture disappears? Essentially what we have is a world of haves and have nots. And that's a scary world to live in. I mean, I was reading the other day, even Jay Leno, who, you know, does the Jay Leno show, he's always worried. He's got like, he's got like 80 Rolls Royces in his garage or Porsches or whatever he's got. Even he's worried every day he's going to go broke. So it's a kind of an instinctive worry that even guys like that are constantly anxious about their jobs and then they'll never be able to go to work again. So it's even worse now that the reality is actually happening. You know, and there's other bad things about working at a job. You know, for one thing, if you work at a job, 100% guarantee someone is talking shit about you right now. Someone is backstabbing you right now. I can guarantee you people are backstabbing you behind your, your, your back at your job. I hope not, but that happens at 100% of jobs in the world. Another crazy thing about the workplace, you're at your job 10 hours a day. Let's say from like 8 in the morning to you know, six in the evening, you're at your job and you can't have sex with anybody at the job. You can't even touch them or else you might get sued. You get this huge manual that nobody reads in the beginning of your work at the job on day one. And they say, don't do any of this. And one of those things is you can't basically flirt or have sex with any other employees or you have to tell somebody like in human resources. That's like that's like slavery. Like it's like it's like 1984. Like, oh, I'm going to have sex with somebody. Now I've got to like tell a secretary that I'm having sex with this person so they can put it into a, a computer. So this may seem like, you know, OK, that's obvious about jobs. You shouldn't be having sex with all the employees. But where else are you going to meet people? You know, one one way I kind of think is safe to meet people, if it's not the job, it's the tolls. So, you know, when you're driving to work and you go on the turnpike or whatever and then you have to pay a toll, there's usually a woman on the other side collecting your toll money. That seems to me the safest place in the world to ask a girl out because whether she says yes or no, you have to just keep going. Like you can ask her out like, hey, hey, babe, would you like to go out with me and, and maybe we could have sex after that? She, if she says yes or no, you just have to keep going. You can't stop and be embarrassed. There's no awkward moments there. You just have to go. Maybe you get her phone number or you don't or you see her the next day, whatever. She's had time to think about it. So, OK, other than tolls and like the workplace, what else are you going to do to meet people? So that's just a couple of the things that are scary about the workplace. But in general... We live in an economy now where the entire workforce is undergoing change and disappointment and disappearing. And then combine that with like the stock market. So if the stock market goes down three days in a row, which is not abnormal, suddenly I, at least, maybe you too, I get all these emails 
I must have subscribed to these emails like 15 years ago. I don't know how they follow me around, but suddenly everybody says the world is going to end. You know, stock market's down three days in a row. Apple, the iPod is dead. You know, no, nobody should buy Apple anymore, which means the whole world is going to collapse and the economic system is going to disappear. So I get all these like scary emails. So what I try to do is avoid the emails. And I also try to avoid uh, working in the workplace. So one thing that is very special about my next guest, Gary Vaynerchuk, who you're about to meet, is that he gives us some tools by which we could avoid having the regular standard job. He shows us how we can use all these kind of brand new internet tools, you know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, all of these things we can use to basically, you know, find, to choose ourselves, to find our own work that we love and to communicate our message out to a billion people, you know, who are like a billion people have signed up for Facebook. That's like, that's like more people than believe in Jesus Christ have signed up for Facebook. And so it's, and, and not only that, you're allowed to communicate to all of them. So I want to tell you one story that's kind of, kind of the bad side of Facebook, but also very interesting. So when I first got on Facebook, I guess it was around 2006 or 2007, I started playing this word game. It was like Scrabble. I think it was called Word Twist. It was like some boggle sort of game. And there was this woman who kept beating me consistently on this game. We would play all day long because I was at some job and I hated it. And I would just play on this on this word game. And it turned out she was from Malaysia and she was very beautiful. We became Facebook friends. And I thought to myself, wow, this is great. Maybe I'll uh, get divorced and start going out with this girl from Malaysia and have lots of little Malaysian kids. And, uh, you know, we started chatting. She owned this chain of gyms. She had lots of friends. I would always see her photos. She had tons of friends. And I would check out her status updates. And, you know, her status updates would be like, hi, it's my birthday. Or, hey, I just got this really high scoring word on Word Twist. Um, and then one time she had this status update. Uh, very simple. She said, the only good Jew is a dead Jew. And I noticed, like, within about an hour, a thousand of her friends had liked her status update. So I saw her on chat and I texted her and I said, oh, you know, I'm Jewish. So does this mean we're not going to have little Malaysian kids anymore after I get my divorce? And she laughed and she said, haha, you're excluded. But of course, I am Jewish, so I wasn't excluded. So uh, the next day she unfriended me anyway and we never spoke again. But what was really interesting to me there was, A, I was shocked how many people had liked her status update within just an hour of her posting it. That means that somewhere across the world, there was a group of people, a society, a culture of people that was 100% different from my society and culture. And yet, for like a year, we had been friends and communicating and texting and playing games on this thing called Facebook. We were actually able to cooperate together for at least a year before she discovered this really bad thing about me and I discovered this really bad thing about her. And it reminds there, there's nothing else like that in the history of the universe. So so I'm going to I'm going to get back to why I think 
Gary Vaynerchuk is such an important guest. And basically it goes back 70,000 years. So what happened 70,000 years ago? Well, we were all kind of like apes a little bit. We were traveling around in our tribes of like 30 people. And when we came across meat, we would usually have to wait for like the lion to kill something. Like the lion would kill the deer and it would eat most of the meat. And then bears would come along and then birds would come and like pick out the meat. And then we were like in the middle of the food chain. We would, we would be able to eat the bone marrow, but we, would, we wouldn't get to eat most of the meat. So suddenly, though, we had this great idea. And it was like probably the first real idea any species ever had in the history of, you know, animals on Earth. So we had this idea that if we work together as a larger group, we might move up the food chain. And the only way we can work together as a group is if there was no way I, we could physically know the intimate details of more than like 20 or 30 people, because that's what we have been used to for millions of years. But if we learned how to gossip about people, then suddenly we could work in a bigger group. We can work with maybe 150 people. That was like the maximum we could work with. But if I knew that, oh, um, you know, I'm talking to John and John tells me that Jane is pretty good to work with then gossip suddenly allows me to cooperate with Jane, even though she's a complete stranger to me. So suddenly our working group went from 30 people to 150 people. So what did this mean? It meant something really good. It meant we could basically kill everything we wanted to kill. So we started off with the people we were in most competition with, which was the Neanderthals. Notice there's no more Neanderthals on earth because they were stuck working in tribes of 30. Now we're suddenly 150 because we could gossip about each other. Now you might be thinking, what does this have to do with Gary Vaynerchuk? Is he the last living Neanderthal? No, of course not. I'm going to get to it. So, but we ne now we needed to learn how to work in groups bigger than 150 if we really wanted to eat well. Like if we wanted to basically stop roaming around the planet and we wanted to grow our own food, we needed to be able to cooperate with a larger group of people to avoid being attacked and invaded and whatever. We had to form societies and kingdoms and, and the whole thing. So what did we do? We invented storytelling. So this probably happened, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 years ago. I'm not really an evolutionary biologist or whatever, but this is what happened. So suddenly we made up all these stories like, my kingdom is the best. You know, my, my Babylonian kingdom is the best. Or we made up stories like, okay, uh, God is going to protect all of my people or Jesus or Maha or Allah or Buddha, whoever is going to protect all my people and everybody who has the same belief as me, we're all going to protect each other. So this having beliefs and storytelling allowed us suddenly to work with complete strangers that were maybe, a, you know, a thousand miles away from me. You know, suddenly now a million people could, could work together or 200 million people could work together. The United States is the best, for instance. That's a story. There's no, there's no, you know, we only existed for 200 years or 250 years. There's no real, uh, factual basis of that. It's just a story that we've told ourselves for a tiny bit of human and animal history. So what are some other stories? Well, obviously religion, all religions are stories. All nations are stories. 
all belief systems like Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. These are all stories and they give us ideas to live. But I can say, okay, well, you subscribe to this podcast and I subscribe to this podcast. So we don't we're complete strangers, but we know we can work together to an extent. Uh, and we might be able to cooperate with each other to protect each other from people who listen to other podcasts. Like, uh, you know, if you listen to this American Life podcast, maybe you're no good. But if you listen to the James Altucher Show podcast, then now we could cooperate together and, and love each other as we all should. So what happened next was this remarkable thing is, you know, we had these kingdoms and these empires and they grew bigger and bigger and bigger. So we went from 130 people to 150 people to a thousand people to a million people to groups of two, 300 million people to even, you know, China's got two billion people made up of many smaller groups of people. But now suddenly Facebook and Twitter and all this social media, if you combine them all together, you have almost the entire planet. Like suddenly we have this mechanism by which we can communicate and cooperate and play games with strangers who we have nothing to do with. And in fact, we may find out later they're completely bad people or we actually shouldn't cooperate with them. But for a while, we're able to cooperate and communicate and even have sexual fantasies about these complete strangers that we talk to over these massive social networks, you know, Facebook being the biggest, Twitter being the second biggest. And so what does this mean? Well, it's sort of like the end point of evolution that humans have been unifying more and more, that we're becoming one big, massive group uh, where country borders and religious borders are hopefully starting to break down. And how we communicate, you know, changes. It's not just, you know, telling stories around a campfire or writing a book or writing a blog. There's all sorts of ways now we have to communicate. And part of communication means we're also going to be selling our goods. So let's say I get fired from my job, but now I'm going to write a research report. Uh, let's say the research report is how to uh, default on your student loans and not get caught. Or let's say the research report is how to get uh, cured from cancer without going to a doctor. So there's all sorts of ideas you can think of that you can sell on the Internet without a middleman. Um, it might be products that you built. It might be an information product. It might be some service you offer. Who knows? But we're getting to this world situation where we have to essentially choose ourselves. We can't rely on another corporation to choose us or else they might fire us and they might put all these limitations on us and they might order us around to do things we don't want to do or they might not pay us enough or they might talk behind our backs and make us very unhappy or they might stress us out. So we have to, we have to choose ourselves and the way we can do that is to start selling things and selling our products or our services on these massive social networks that allow us to bypass the gatekeepers. On the last episode, the one with Tucker Max, we talked some of the ways by which we can bypass these gatekeepers. But now Gary Vaynerchuk's really the expert. And who is he? Well, first off, I've known him for a while. He's a very good guy, and you'll see that on the interview with him. He's written a bunch of best-selling books. We're going to talk about his last uh, book, which really breaks down how to use social media, how to communicate with social media to reach people in the most effective way. 
He started out as an immigrant to the United States. Then his parents opened up some kind of bullshit little wine business. He brought that wine business onto the web. He started having weekly videos about wine, and they got very popular. So he was using social media in a way that was correct. And then he figured, okay, well, I know how to use social media. I'm going to build up a big company to help people how to use social media. And VaynerMedia, which is his company, happens to be very large now. He has you know, multiple Fortune 100 clients, and he's written a bunch of books about how to use social media. So I took his last book, which we'll talk about in a second. I took his last book and experimented with it, all his different ideas, and they really worked for me. Like I, I put out a Facebook status report, and I used some of Gary's ideas, and suddenly I got 10 times the engagement on my status report. I did the same thing with a blog. I've been using Pinterest. I've been using Twitter the way he suggests. So it's been really amazing how Gary made himself such an expert in social media that it really teaches people how to communicate in this new, what I will call evolutionary medium, which is social media. So now, without further ado, welcome to the James Altucher Show, and I bring you my first guest, or my second guest, sorry, this is the second podcast, Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm here with my good friend, Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary, you just, congratulations, New York Times best-selling book, Jab, 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 Right Hook. Congratulations. Did, was this your first it. appearance on the New York Times bestseller list with this book? This is my third. Third straight. Third with, with three books. That's right. I have to say I enjoyed uh, Crush It and I enjoyed the Thank You Economy. They motivated a lot of my own daily actions in social media. But this book is the book. This is the Bible for social media. And I'm going to quickly tell people why, and then I'll let you do your thing. But the reality is we're all, you kind of address this book to uh, major brands and mainstream companies, but we've all as individuals now have become like one person media companies. We all have to communicate and, and get our message out there. And that's going to happen through uh, not just email, but Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. And you describe what brands are doing wrong, what brands are doing right. How about, can you give us as individuals though, given the fact that every individual now has become a brand of some sort, what would you suggest? How do people get their message across on Facebook and Twitter and so on? S summarize your book real quickly. Sure, no problem. So, you know, as you went through it, James, I, I saw you already put one Facebook post to practice. I was excited to see that. Um, yeah, I've been trying out all your techniques. They're fantastic. I've been blown away. I appreciate it. So as you know, through the book with 80 case studies, I did go big brands a lot because that's the world I know very well with VaynerMedia. But I did interstitial, you know, celebrities and small pizza shops and ice cream stores and things of that nature. And so the funny thing to your question, James, and for everybody listening is the game's really the same, right? You know, at the end of the day, we need to put out contact that content, excuse me, that is contextual to the platform we put it out on, right? So whether you're an individual that's selling, you know, a self-published book or wine or, or selling cars or pizza at your local pizza shop or some gadget that you got funded on Kickstarter, the way you execute on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Snapchat is actually fundamentally no different than the way that Fortune 500 brands do it. The difference is they're going to default into spending too much money on amplifying it. We, as entrepreneurs, don't have that luxury. So at some level, we even have to be slightly even better at doing the craft of it 
than the rest of the world. Gary, let, let me let me ask you about that, because I would say that traditionally brands have not done what they are doing today in terms of today. You have to be authentic on social media, whereas like the, the old Hardee's commercial where Paris Hilton was, uh, you know, eating this hamburger while really sexy. That was sort of how branding happened 10 years ago. But now you have to be a lot more authentic. Like a Hardee's hamburger is not necessarily sexy. You have to actually tell a story with, with your, your Facebook content and your Twitter or, content. Or, so maybe address or, that a little bit. Or they need to provide some sort of value, right? And so the, the value they provided with that Paris Hilton commercial that I recall as well was shock value and being current, right? But... What we have the ability to do now is is we have the ability to be customer service. I mean, that's what the thank you economy was all about, James, right? The Q&A stuff that you do. You're bringing value to your community by really providing customer service information, what I would call being a counterpuncher, being responsive, right? So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to become a utility. You know, Hardee's can do a whole lot for its target demographic of a lot of teenagers by telling them, by doing a Hardee's top three apps, top three free apps on the iPhone and literally become a media company and each Friday put out free app Friday and put out a post on Facebook describing some new app. And that's a utility that becomes a curator that's bringing value by educating their audience. The other way they can do it is by couponing and all the classic stuff we've seen before. And then finally, a version of what they did with Paris Hilton, which I think is great jabbing, which is when there's throwback Thursday, why not put out a picture of the first Hardee's restaurant or, or, or burger that they ever put out? Um, or, or whatever memes are going on at that point, target that to the community that you're actually trying to serve. So if you've got a lot of teenage girls you know, why not have a roast beef sandwich twerking? All these 30-second, ha-ha, you're relevant, you feel like you're cool, you feel like you're talking the right slang, there's a relevancy. And so for everybody listening that hasn't heard, jab, 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 right hook stands for give, 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 and then ask. How do we all provide enough value up front that when we ask for the sale, we actually convert? This has been the success, backbone of my success in my career, and, and really it's what matters. So, so Gary, let's take an example of like a random lawyer or an accountant, like a solopreneur who's trying to build his business, doesn't have many customers yet, but they would like to use social media to get more followers and then more customers. What should they do? Let's start right from day one. You're, you're, you know, you're an accountant. There's two. Let me make this statement. Everybody says everybody's a brand. I'm going to take it a step further. I truly believe that every single person and every single business is a media company, right? I mean, look, James, look what you and I are doing right now, right? right? I mean, this is incredible to think 15 years ago. You and I are a little older, right? So 15 years ago, imagine you being a radio show host and me being a – I mean, it's just, it's just nuts what's happened. I mean, It's, and I it's nuts even right now, Gary, so let's, <laughs> we, we can stick with that. So in 2006, I saw this, which is why I started Wine Library TV on YouTube. And this is just the basic progression. So this accountant or lawyer or small business needs to decide what they are as a media company. Now, you could become the expert in your field, which is what I did with Wine Library TV, which is what Dr. Phil did, and it's really the whole Oprah network. There's another thing you can do, James, and this is where the things get really interesting. And I want you to follow me here. 
Michelin, the Michelin Tire Company, started reviewing restaurants and villas 100 years ago and started the Michelin Star System to get people to drive to use their tires. So they literally, literally started reviewing villas and restaurants in the countryside, started printing these books, putting them in Paris and London, and then the affluent started driving three to four hours to go to these restaurants, and they would finally eventually use up their tires, and they would sell them more tires. Guinness, 50 years later, 50 years ago, started the Guinness Book of World Records to put out content around the interest of the pub drinkers in London. So here's a real left turn, James. Start producing content around the interests of your target audience. If I'm a lawyer and I'm going after high net worth individuals, male skewed in corporate America, I may start a golf blog. Mm-hmm. And this gets really weird, but imagine right now, you know, an hour a day, uh, you know, you want to build your practice, you're doing something called golf daily. And really, you, and it's your interest, it's the interest of your users, and then all of a sudden, every fifth show or fifth post like BuzzFeed, it's a, it's a native ad, it's a branded ad, and basically it's a, a promotion for your law firm. Well, Gary, I love this idea that of treating each person as their own media company. It goes very along the lines with my idea that people now have to choose themselves because the gatekeepers are gone. The middlemen are gone. But it's interesting how you point out how companies like Guinness and Michelin have been doing this for a century. So uh, it, it brings it it brings it to the present day that, you know, now you kind of have to create not just advertorial content, but real value to uh, bring in those customers, bring in those followers. But it's not different than what people were doing 100 years ago. The only it's, just difference, the, it's just the media have changed. The only difference is, though, James, was it took a big company like Michelin and Guinness to do it. The fact that you and me, little some shlemiels from the East Coast can do this, I mean, it's incredible. Well, now, Gary, let me ask you about, so, so let's talk about the specific media. So Facebook, what are the top two or three things people should remember when posting content on Facebook? Um, that this is the one place that people most use like an email service and it's the single biggest reason people suck at it. Let me say it again. 99% of the people listening right now, and James, I've been watching a lot of what's been going on with you and you have an incredible community and a lot of it overlaps with me as well and some of the other people I think that I respect. Very smart people, but the problem is everybody's in the right hook, right hook, right hook, right hook, right hook business. You can't use your Facebook as the one place to do call to actions every single time. So first and foremost, I want to get everybody down on the religion. Facebook, because it has the scale, has been defaulted into a modern-day email service for a lot of people, and it just won't work. Okay? That's number one. Number two, you've got to put out pictures if you can help it. You've got to. You've got to put the extra 20 to 30 minutes effort per post and either use Photoshop or find something out there. Pictures over-index dramatically because the far majority of people now are going through their phone, whizzing through their phone and their timeline, and your words are just not going to stop them. Now, you've got to mix it up. I'm using, I'm using a mix, too, but pictures over-index. Number three, you need to make sure that you're putting out content that is in line with the slang of Facebook. Let me explain. A year ago, James, did you see this? When a year ago, there was that whole meme where people would put up signs and it would say, if this gets a million likes, my dad will buy me a puppy. Or Yeah, sure. 
So, James, that would have been huge for you. You did incredible work with your last book. I'm sure everybody listening knows all the different free and all these amazing things you did. But, you know, if it was six months earlier, I probably would take a picture right now and say, if this gets, you know, if this post gets, you know, a million likes, I'll give away, you know, a million <laughs> minutes of free consulting or 100,000 or 1,000, if I could be Oh, my God, that would have been a great uh, Gary, why didn't I ask you for help like six months ago? <laughs> that would have been a great idea. But, but think about it. If a lawyer right now, back to tying this interview all together, if a lawyer that's trying to break through right now or a business consultant put up that sign right now and said, if this gets 100,000 likes, I'll give somebody, uh, you know, uh, 10 hours of my time or 10 hours of community service if you're in the NGO space. I mean, so that's what's going on right now. When there was the Ryan Gosling, hey girl meme, right? You could have, you know, James, if you would have done a hey girl meme play, you would have crushed it. But what I what I have lost, what I've gotten lost in the crowd, like the whole. So you refer to this as newsjacking or trendjacking in in your book. Would I have been lost in just the millions of tweets and and hashtags and so on that were about that same meme? My belief is that if you do it early on, not as much. It's a land grab, right? Like, why was I able to get a lot of followers on Twitter so early on? Because it was easier in 06 and 07 and 08, and it's harder now. So the answer is, if you did trend jacking, it's kind of like being cool, James, right? If you're one of the first hundred people in your 4,000-person high school to wear the new kind of style of pants, well, then you, you're cool. But if you're, like, the last person to put on a pair of Z Cavaricis in the 90s, well, then you were lame, right? So there's a level of really what's applied to coolness in society at some level works here as well. The answer to your question would have been the timing of what you would have done it at. Damn, Gary, I was always lame through high school. Maybe I, you should have been picking out my clothes for me back then. So, <laughs> so okay, Twitter. What's, uh, what are people doing wrong on Twitter and how can they improve? Twitter's the number one social network. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. It's the only true social network. Facebook and Pinterest and Tumblr and Instagram have defaulted into content, into content platforms. Twitter's still the one place you, you can jump into a conversation and engage and bring value, and nobody thinks it's creepy. It's part of the cocktail party. So, number one, twitter.com slash search. Using that platform to search key terms around what you're interested in, you know, is imperative. So if you're a lawyer, again, using the theme, and you're a divorce lawyer, going into twitter.com slash search and seeing, like, typing in terms that say, you know, thinking about getting a divorce, struggling through my divorce, you know, need more information. It's not search like Google. It's search of what people would say. Just like I type in drinking wine and I see a ton of people talking about wine and I jumped into those conversations. So Twitter search is number one. Number two, trending topics. So James, you want to put out something about this podcast on your Twitter, let's say. You have me on the show. And you've, you know, you've decided to tweet out, you know, have Gary be on the show, great podcast, blah, blah, blah. You want to say that. Instead of saying that, waiting for a few minutes or trying to be creative and seeing what's trending on Twitter at that moment and then tying it in to what we were talking about. So in theory, um, what I do now is I look at what's trending on Twitter, and if I see a hashtag that's generic enough like, you know, you know, I miss the days when, right? Hashtag I miss the days when. I'll use that and be like, I miss the days when I got to be on, you know, James Alshon's show and then link it to that. So there's a way to be creative with Very what's smart. 
what's trending, and I'm seeing a 600% engagement increase when I'm jumping on, when I'm using my creative writing skills to jump on something that's already trending, yet still saying what I wanted to say, just with a little bit more of a unique twist. What's happening, James, is this, and what everybody's listening, everybody is using Facebook and Twitter specifically as distribution to awareness of something else happening on the internet. I say use them as actual places to tell a story. So, Gary, let me ask you about some other uh, areas on the social web where you don't really address it as much in the book. But, of course, the same ideas apply. And I'm, I'm curious what you think of these areas. Reddit, Quora. And one thing that's very useful for me always is guest blogging on other people's blogs. And I always encourage people to yeah. do that. But Reddit was a very powerful tool for me to sell my last book. And I know you're doing a Reddit AMA on December 14th. So, so tell me about that. So because I wanted to stick specifically to social networks where you put out content and people are able to comment on it, which is the basic thread of how I thought, I kept, I, I stayed very focused on this. But the third thing you said is, in my opinion, the singular most fruitful way to build a personal brand or build awareness around what you do. I believe the hustle of guest blogging, reaching out to people because they're all in need of content and and allowing and in the beginning and James you know this and I definitely know this in the beginning you're not going to get the biggest and best blogs right but as you work your way up I think that is an incredible piece of advice to everybody. I think guest blogging is amazing. Everybody needs content. And if you're willing to put out the work, you're getting invited to somebody's home and you're getting exposure elsewhere. That's number one. Number two, you know, Reddit is a beast. I mean, Reddit is as important as a website right now and has as big of a community as anything on the Internet. And so, you know, these, you know, ask me anythings are are very fertile, huge opportunity, you know, and I, I guess you experience this. I haven't done one yet, um, so I'm about to find out, but I guess you experienced this at scale. Um, James, I assume that you were able to, you know, bring yourself to an entire new audience because of it. That's right. I would say Reddit was the number one way I was able to market and boost sales for my book doing those. I did two AMAs and they were very good. Um, so, so Gary, it seems to me when I look at the arc of your career, you've gone from success to, to success. You did the wine library, brought your company sales from 3 million to 45 million. You've, you've done three New York Times bestselling books. Uh, you have Vayner Media, which is a successful company. You and I both invested in Buddy Media and that worked out very well. Uh, tell us when, when was there a hard time in your life? What's been difficult for you? You know, ironically, the first 18 years in a weird way were difficult. You know, I was, I was born in Russia. I came here. Um, you know, I didn't speak English. It was tough to, you know, kind of break into the American culture at first when I was four or five. Um, and, 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 you know, n no easy track on the way up. And then really the really most dark ages are really between six and 17 because I was such an F and D student, James. So unlike a lot of the contemporaries that we hang out with, I wasn't a good student. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I was really considered a failure, at least in the context of school. Luckily, I had an amazing mother who recognized I had some over-the-top skills when it came to being an entrepreneur. But I mean, you know, at four times, eight times a year, when I would get my progress report and when I'd get my report card, James, I would have the stress of running home and trying to steal my report card out of my mailbox before my mom got it so that I could flush it down the toilet. <laughs> And so that was really tough. And then I would tell you the one interesting transition that's a little more practical than like, okay, way back in the day is right after Wine Library and Crush It, 2009, 
I was really riding high. Wine Library TV was on fire. WineLibrary.com was exploding. Crush It just became this big breakout hit. I was speaking. I just invested in Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, so I knew that was going to work out. I was really in a crazy good place. My brother was graduating college, and I decided to not only start VaynerMedia with AJ, but I I bought Corked.com, which was a wine social network. I started Obsessed TV, where I was a partner with this amazing talent, Samantha Edis, on a review show uh, for YouTube. And then I, I started um, Forest, which was a social network for designers and developers, very nerdy. Um, and Obsessed, Corked, and Forest all failed, all of them. And uh, the reason I failed was because I had big eyes. I thought I could do everything. I still do. And it's still the thing that will cause me trouble in the future. So in 2009, I did, I did lose a lot of money trying to start three other companies, um, mainly because I just couldn't do it all. And I, I, I let down my partners in some way in those businesses because my bravado and my ego and my big eyes made me feel like I could. And unfortunately for me, you know, my, my partners in those other businesses weren't necessarily able to do enough to, to get me to the place where I could take it to the next level the way my brother AJ was able to do with VaynerMedia. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think those failed because there's no such thing as the uh, uh, niche social network right now because Facebook and Twitter have so clearly dominated? No, because if I put time into it, I would have adjusted. To, the, the answer is yes, but I would have adjusted them, Right. I could have turned Corked into a wine of the month club or a wine course. The, the, the truth is yes in principle, but no in actual business because what I'm very good at and why I've been successful in my career is when I'm paying attention to something and when I'm in charge, I will always adjust. I mean, VaynerMedia started as community management, then turned into micro content and a content strategy shop. So I'm good enough to adjust. I just didn't have enough hours in the day and my partners weren't entrepreneurial enough or putting in really enough of the great work. And, and really, I didn't support them. And so there's just a lot of variables. I, I didn't know how to vet partners. Not, and again, I'm, I don't think this is their fault. I just promised things that I would do that I wasn't able to do because I didn't have enough time or, at the end of the day. And now I know what I'm looking for if I'm going to go into a business because I need somebody to be able to do what I do as well. And I need to sit at a higher level. I can't be in the trenches on everything all the time, always. So, so Gary, uh, you know, people fail and businesses don't work out, but the real key is how someone comes back from that failure and what they learn from it. So how do you think you, you know, in 2009 was a tough year for, for many people. How do you think you, you bounced back from that failure and what, what got you, you know, what got your engines going again? You know, the, like, the nice thing was Wine Library TV continued to explode. Wine Library was good. I mean, the truth is, uh, knock on wood, I wasn't failing to the level where I went to zero or had to bounce back up. I had other successful things. VaynerMedia was doing its thing. What, what's really interesting is I'm still nervously I'm st- uh, James, you don't mind if I turn this into like a therapy session, right? No, uh, that's, that's, that's the way I like it. I'm still nervous that I haven't totally learned from that experience, meaning... <laughs> I uh, I hope that I've learned not trying to bite off more than I can chew, but I just know I have it in me. I just have this enormous ambition and drive that gets me into traps at times. 
Well, you know, there's there's an interesting thing where on the one hand, you want to diversify your opportunities, which is clearly what you did. You made a bunch of investments and you started four or five companies simultaneously and one does well and some investments do well and you're, you know, you, you, you're successful and you make a lot of money. Um, on the other hand, is biting off more than you can chew. So how do you find the balance between that? You know, and clearly, by the way, this is not just you, but everyone has to find this balance because it's no longer the case that you can just do one thing in your life and that's how you have safety. You have to have some diversification in in your opportunities. And for me, instead of investing, I recognize I'm talented as an operator. So, of course, I want to bet on myself. It's been the thing that's given me the most success, right? So, on the flip side, when I look at my exit on Twitter and Buddy Media and Tumblr, (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's been humbling how much I've been able to make a lot of money on uh, rivaling my entire life's work based on being smart. So, you know, I'm maturing as well. I'm getting into, you know, I'm in my late 30s now, and I'd like to think that I'm going to be a better businessman and executor in my 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, now, this this book is your, your third book, but it's part of a 10-book agreement that you made when you initially started doing these books. So, when, when are you going to run out of content? Like, what's your next seven books going to be about? What, what's the next book about? Well, the good news is when, I, when that, that 10 book deal that was reported when I signed was true, except they didn't know every detail, which was I had an out clause if Crush It was successful to a degree that they didn't think it was going to be. Luckily for me, it was. So I'm out of that contract. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. So Crush It was written by Harper Studios, if you look carefully at the book. My last two has been written by Harper Business. So I'm still with Harper, and I'm super happy. And and Jab, 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 Right Hook is the first of a two-book deal that I am involved in. So there will be a fourth book, Um, though I am thinking more of parenting or a different actual genre. I feel like this is a nice trilogy. The one thing I could see myself doing is making a very detailed book around Jab, 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 Right Hook for small business and entrepreneurs with hundreds of case studies that are literally individuals and very small businesses. So maybe a follow-up to this, maybe called Crushed It, because I have thousands of people that have won because of Crush It. So I'm trying to figure out that whole thing, James. Um, so I'm not crippled by the need to... Uh, to uh, come up with new content. But the funny part is, is the way I roll, James, is I don't have a lot of theses, right? I've run out of content. The beauty for me is people continue to be slow to adjust to the reality of the marketplace. I can write this thesis on top of Google Glass and smart technology. I can write this thesis on top of us going to Mars. I can write this thesis on top of smart everything. I can write this thesis on top of a lot of the shifts. What I'm good at is moving quickly when the world changes and then applying my 14, 15 business principles against it. Well, you know, Gary, I love the idea of the next book being catered towards kind of the, the, the one-man media company because I really do feel like even though VaynerMedia, your, your, your customers are, let's say, the Fortune 1000, I think Gary Vaynerchuk, your audience, is the solopreneurs and the, the bloggers and the, the, the individual content creators that are – there are millions out there. I and think that's a huge idea. I think you're right, and, and that's why I, I definitely mix them into this book, but what, what was great great for me is the big companies are further along in producing this content. And as you know, half of the case studies, for everybody that doesn't know, half of the case studies in this book, I talk about being crap. I mean, James, yeah, my biggest... Well, and, I, and I will say also, the case studies you use, even if they're for big brands, they're great. And I know because I've been trying them out just in preparation for this interview. I took your, your Amtrak idea I and saw. applied it to my own stuff. And it's fantastic how my, my engagement quadrupled on one post. 
it's the biggest thing. You know what, James? I'm, I think your audience is going to like this. Do you know what I did before I wrote this book? I have I no sat, idea. I sat down and I read every negative review of Crush It and Thank You Economy on Amazon twice. Well, you know, it's interesting because I noticed, unlike most authors, because I, I went through all those reviews also in preparation for this uh, interview, and you uh, you comment on a lot of your reviews, which most authors don't do. I, I kind of make it a rule, actually, not to engage with the people who are negatively commenting because I sort of feel that that, that encourages the, the negativity. But, I, but go I, ahead. with what, res- Why did you I, do that? I respect that POV, but I actually go the other way. I actually very heavily respect my critics because I actually believe that 95% of them are being authentically true. Do I believe there's 5% that just want to dislike you or are using your name to build a name for themselves? Absolutely. But I, I get it. I'm self-aware. I know that I can come across aggressive or obnoxious on stage or in writing because I have a lot of bravado. I'm not confused by that. And so I actually just respect my haters quite a bit, and I feel as though I listen to them. I think they help me get better, and I want to acknowledge their efforts because it's positive. It's, it's helping me, um, and so I spend a lot of time engaging with negativity um, because I think it's actually, I think they're coming from an authentic place. I think, I, I really do think a lot of times it does come from an authentic place, and I'm also self-aware of my shortcomings, and I try to evolve, so... I do that. And then the real reason I read the negative reviews twice was, especially Thank You Economy, a lot of people said, listen, this is a great book, but this is a why book. I want a how-to. And you could tell by this book, and I'm so flattered by your opening line of the, I I really wanted that. I mean, when you said this is the Bible of social media, or when people have been saying, well, this is the first 201 or 301 book in the social media space, that's what I wrote it for. And I needed to read that negativity of, don't write a why book, don't write a why book. And that's why I went with the structure of the 80 case studies, because it allowed me to make it a very specific how-to. Although I would say, I would say the Thank You Economy was a how-to book, and I'll tell you why. The title. Okay, I don't have to even read further than the title to know what to do in every situation from that book. I agree. And that book actually has worked very well for me. Just Listen, simply I've saying thank you it. to my biggest audience. Listen, I agree. Um, but some, you know, you're also, listen, everybody who's listening to this knows you're ridiculously smart, too, James. There's a, there's well, a, I don't know, know about that. Gary, well, but listen, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to play humility right now, but you're ridiculously smart. And, and not that anybody else isn't, but, when you go as, I mean, I can't believe how great, I mean, this was a, listen, I was a DNF student, James. For me to get this granular, this was the first time I've done homework in my life. I mean, I had to really work to produce, we went through thousands, hundreds, excuse me, of case studies to get to these 80. It was a pain in my ass. Well, you know, I want to, I want to, um, veer off in one direction. You mentioned briefly that you might consider writing content about parenting. And I remember a couple of years back, um, you had an auto response on your email, which basically said you were off the grid for a little while and you were spending time with your family and your kids and, and, and so on. So tell me how you're involved in so many things. How do you find the time to spend with your kids? Tell, tell, talk a little about your family. Extremities. I've won in 2013, this is by far the year of my most happiness with how I've done it, and I've done it through extremities. Let me explain. Yeah, I don't uh, understand that. No worries. 
I was half pregnant before. You know, I'd be working and then I'd be like, wait a minute, I need to spend more time. And I would just leave and cancel some meetings and get home at 5.30 and bathe Misha and, you know, spend some time with Lizzie. But it was, it, there was no system. It was very serendipitous. It was very helter-skelter. It was just a philosophy of like, wait a minute, when I can remember or how do I fight for it? I need to fight for it. It didn't work. What I did was I went extreme. I went to my strengths. I now work 8 a.m. to midnight. And I mean, I walk into my apartment at midnight, not I get home at 8 and work on the computer. I work 8 to midnight, Monday through Friday, James. I really do. I mean, it's the truth. I'm a, I'm a hard, workaholic. I, I'm, there's no confusion by that. On the flip side, my weekends... I'm completely all in on my, my family now. No looking at the phone, answering email, maybe a little bit these last two out of five weekends because of the book, but I would say 50 of the 52 weekends, 48 of the 52 weekends this year, I will be 100% all in. On top of that, instead of the two and a half, three weeks of vacation that I've taken every other year of my life, uh, in the, at least the last 10 years, um, I took seven weeks this year, a lot more time with Lizzie and the kids. And so... I've been able to get a lot more quality time with my family and get a lot of quality work in, which is something that I'm passionate about. I see. So you, you sort of like pack it in. You kind of turn off the phone on Friday night and pick it up again Monday morning or something like that. It's been a hundred and zero to the best of my ability. The vacation time's been ridiculously incredible. I'm ve- it's very easy for me to tune out. And on the weekends, I was really like, let me get an hour in. Let me do this five minutes. I'd look at my phone 15 times when I was at the park with my daughter. I've been able to cut that out and be really focused. And so do, do I spend as much hours as somebody listening right now saying, wait a minute, 12 to 8 to, eight to 12? I mean, he's out all of Monday through Friday. Yeah, the weekend. And so, you know, I, you know so am I as around as somebody who gets home at 6 and spends time? I'm not. But for the hours that I am, I'm dramatically more tuned in. So, so Gary, related to that, and I find this is the case with a lot of workaholics, including my own periods of workaholism, and I'll, I'll call it an addiction, that often workaholics have a f- hard time celebrating their successes. So, like, let's say when you've had a good exit, like Buddy Media or Twitter or whatever, how do you let yourself relax a little bit and celebrate? I'm terrible at it, and it's been the biggest discussion I've had with my brother, AJ, for the last eight... I can't believe you brought up this question. I'm almost a little bit scared and wondering if you wiretapped my office. Um, this is the single... <laughs> that was part of my homework for this interview, so you know, don't worry about it. So you've got me pegged. I've never celebrated anything. I really, it's, it's really quite sad. And learning the fact that I was able to adjust this year to a different work-life balance that has worked for me, might not be right for everybody, but has been huge for me and my family... The next big thing is the next thing of any tangible, you know, results, I'm going to learn how to try to do something. And I think it's going to be predicated on going away with the people involved because I don't need a car or a jet or a watch. I don't like stuff, but I've done an awful job with, you know, Twitter went public and Facebook went public and Tumblr sold and Buddy sold and Wildfire sold. And I've had all these great, incredible things. Um, and VaynerMedia, I mean, it, and it's, it's an, I mean, VaynerMedia has come from 20 to 300 people, James. I've, you know, I've taken the business, to, you know, <laughs> you know, AJ doesn't want me putting out numbers, but like eight, it's a hefty eight-figure business in like two minutes, right? So I have a lot to be blessed for and thankful for, and I've not, I am just not been capable of smelling the roses, and that's sad. I'm aware of that, and I'm very focused on making 2014 the beginning of me being able to do that. I think that's really important, Gary, because, you know, people are really 
cons- ha- they have various constituencies inside of them. And the business side and work side is one con- constituency. The family side is another. The personal side is another. And the side which you talk about, you wrote a book about it, you know, the thank you economy, the side where you can say thanks and surrender to what's, you know, the abundance you have is really an, an important constituency, just as important as the work side. It's much more natural for me to do right by others than myself. This is a trait that I really have for my mother. It's made me quite popular in this world, right? That I get more happiness from the giving of, to others. I get enormous, enormous fulfillment from that. Um, and, I'm, you know, I've, I've got to find a better way to cheer for myself because I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm very self-aware that this is going to lead to bitterness in my older years. Yeah, I'm, you don't want to I mean regret. Yeah, I, I, I see it very much where I'm going to say those people, you know, look at all the people that let me down. They weren't there for me. I mean, it's like the, the, I, I'm scared of that. On the flip side, it's stunning to me how little expectation I have in my body. James, the, the biggest thing that has kept me happy at all times is zero expectation. Yeah, well, I always say if, if you have zero expectations, then, you're, then it's going to be very easy to exceed those expectations. And that's, that's a good recipe for happiness, actually. It's, it's been the backbone of my happiness. So, Gary, I, uh, my audience knows I never recommend anything unless I've personally benefited from it myself and I've tried it and I've tried the exercises. I've gone through your I've really learned from it. I've been actually already just in the past week using your techniques. And I see for myself they've they've worked this is not a bs book this book works so i'm happy to recommend it i hope people go out and buy it jab 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 right hook i've got gary vaynerchuk on the show it's been a great half hour gary thanks again i know you have a busy schedule so thanks for coming on the show and this has been great james thank you so much i'm always here for you and anybody in your audience i'm available as you know thanks gary thanks james Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. 